If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. Tonight, Steve Pride talks to Dr. James Mercer about his memoir, Secrets and Shame, Dear Oprah Diaries. Michelle Marie Gilkison reports on the underground London drag scene. And superwoman Michaela Mendelssohn joins us in studio. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm John Dyer V. And I'm Tanya Kane-Perry. With NewsRap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending April 15, 2017. The latest word out of Chechnya is no better for gay men and those perceived to be than when we first reported this story last week. Maria Sjordan is the Deputy Executive Director at Outright Action International formerly known as the International Gay and Lesbian Human Rights Commission. She put the situation in Russia's predominantly Muslim region of Chechnya in perspective during her appearance this week on Gay USA. I've been an LGBT activist for almost 20 years. This is the worst thing I've ever heard about. Because of the scale, what has been confirmed so far is at least 100 men detained, I think in different places, so it's not just one prison. And they are reportedly being tortured. They're trying to get names of others out of them. And at least three killings have been confirmed. Meanwhile, journalists who've been reporting on the atrocities, particularly in the independent Russian newspaper Novaya Gazeta, which first broke the story, are being threatened by religious authorities and government officials. A resolution that followed a meeting of those men on April 3rd at a mosque in the region's capital city of Grozny criticized the publication for insulting Islam and the dignity of Chechen men, and vaguely warned that retribution will overtake the true instigators. Publishers of Novaya Gazeta issued a statement this week saying that we have serious concerns for the safety of our employees. The official line from Chechen officials, the region has a considerable amount of autonomy from the Kremlin in its internal affairs, is repudiation. Outright International's Maria Sjordan explains. The Chechen authorities so far have denied it. Well, basically they denied the existence of gay men. They basically said, well, we don't have those people here, and if we did, their families would deal with them in the appropriate way anyway. It's not like they could go to like the LGBT center of Chechnya and just arrest all the people there. Mm-hmm. It's like they have to find each of these people individually. So it's on a massive scale, and the violence, it's just horrible. 
Leaders at the UN and from the European Union, the UK, the US, Australia, and other countries have called on Russia to stop the purge in Chechnya. Several hundred people protested this week outside the Russian embassy in London. But Dmitry Peskov, an official spokesman for Vladimir Putin, jumped on the denial bandwagon on April 14th, telling reporters that, We do not have any reliable information about any problems in this area. Again, Outright International's Maria Sjordan. Russia is the state. They have to react. They have to respond. They have to investigate. And they have to make these detentions and killings stop. Several governments and the European Parliament have spoken out so far. And I hope this pressure continues to mount because so far we have not seen Russia, at least not in a way that's publicly discernible, respond to this crisis. Survivors of what some reporters are calling concentration camps for gay and perceived to be gay men say that they are beaten and tortured with electric shocks to get them to provide names of their friends whom authorities then track down and arrest. An April 13th media release from the regional LGBTQ rights group ILGA Europe reported that survivors have also expressed fears that the social media accounts of perceived gay and bisexual men are being targeted, hacked, and used to contact other men who have not yet been arrested. The Russian LGBT network continues to receive requests for emergency assistance, although the NGO has not been able to maintain contact with several survivors. This unexplained loss of contact is a clear cause for concern. Petitions posted by Change.org, Amnesty International, and other human rights groups urging the Russian government to stop the Chechen purge are circulating online. In other news, and despite its continued resistance to repealing the country's British colonial-era laws banning gay sex, India's government is making progress on other fronts. Parliament passed the HIV and AIDS Prevention and Control Bill on April 11th that makes it illegal to discriminate against people living with HIV. India is the first country in South Asia to enact such a measure. It mandates access to health care, housing, and education by people living with HIV and makes it a crime for restaurants or shops to refuse them service. It also protects people from undergoing an HIV test, medical treatment, or research without their consent and bans the disclosure of a person's HIV status unless a court order requires it. The bill still has its critics. Some HIV-AIDS advocacy groups worry about the cumbersome process laid out in the measure for the investigation and prosecution of violators. They also point to a possible loophole that requires the government to provide free treatment only as far as possible. Elsewhere, the European Court of Human Rights ruled on April 13th that it's a violation of human rights to require trans people seeking a legal change of gender to be sterilized. 22 countries in Europe currently mandate that procedure before they'll legally recognize the trans person's new gender. But as the New York Times noted, the ruling does not require legal changes in any of those countries because the court has no real enforcement mechanism. Activists say that it could take several more cases before legal changes come to individual countries. Nevertheless, many greeted the ruling as an important milestone. Jessica Stern, executive director of Outright Action International, said in a media statement that, As more countries review laws for gender identity recognition, it is essential that they forego outdated policies and follow legislation from places like Malta or Argentina, which prioritize self-determination. Julia Ert, executive director of Transgender Europe, agreed, saying that, 
We are looking forward to supporting other countries in reforming their national legislation. Meanwhile, Attorney General Jeff Sessions has withdrawn the U.S. Justice Department's Obama-era lawsuit challenging North Carolina's so-called bathroom bill, HB2. The action, announced in a two-sentence filing in federal court on April 14th, follows the reversal by Trump officials of advances toward LGBTQ equality made during the previous administration, including the withdrawal of guidelines to protect transgender students on public school campuses. The Justice Department rationale in this week's reversal is that North Carolina lawmakers repealed HB2. That was good enough to lure the NCAA and NBA back to the Tar Heel State for much-coveted collegiate and professional sports championship games in the future. However, the replacement measure, HB 142, allows only state lawmakers to set policies regarding the use by transgender people of sex-segregated public facilities, like bathrooms and locker rooms, and it bans local governments in the state from enacting ordinances to protect their LGBT citizens from discrimination until at least the year 2020. However, LGBTQ legal advocacy groups that had challenged HB2 are now amending their lawsuits to challenge the constitutionality of HB142. That's News Wrap for the week ending April 15, 2017. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Tanya Kane Perry. And I'm John Dyer V. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And Michaela Mendelson is a transgender activist, public speaker, parent, board member, businesswoman. She serves on the board of the Trevor Project, the board of the Resist March, and founded the California Trans Work Project, which is also called Trans Can Work. And in the midst of all that, has somehow found time to join us live in studio tonight. Thank you so much for joining us, Michaela. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about Trans Can Work and what is the need that you're addressing? Well, a quick story. Four and a half, five years ago, we hired our first transgender employee. I, uh, one of my hats I wear is a businesswoman, and I own a number of El Pollo local restaurants throughout L.A. and Ventura County. And uh, one of my managers had hired our first transgender employee about five years ago, and I met with Christy a week later. And you'll find her story on our website, transcanwork.org. It's gotten about 8 million views in the last month and a half. And, and um, when I heard her story of what she had faced in the workplace, I realized how fortunate I was to have transitioned as the boss of my own company and started hiring more transgender employees. And um, with my hat as also a businesswoman and supporting two families, I was a little concerned about it at first, of how my customers and fellow employees would react. But it's been a wonderful experience. Um, the employees have each other's back, just like any other diversity. And the customers just love our new transgender employees and love the relationships they have with them. And so um, we get more compliments on our transgender and gender nonconforming employees per person than anyone else. What are the issues that employers have with hiring transgendered people? Because apparently they're twice as likely to be unemployed. And trans it's a very, people. Yeah, trans, yeah, trans employees. Yeah. And so what is it that employee, employers have difficulty with you could call it a bias, but I'd like to think of it as a lack of understanding. And so what we've decided to do is, because it's been so successful for us, uh, including the fact that 
nearly 30% of the people we've hired, about 45 of them over the, the last four years, have made the pathway to management. From entry level to management, that's two to three times the norm. You know, we've decided since this is so successful for us and we want to help others, we brought this out to other businesses throughout the state. And we developed a training video, 10 minutes, that was written by a transgender television writer of 35 years who happens to be closeted because of, you know, issues that they worry about facing on their job. But it's an entertaining, so it's an entertaining but very informative video that promotes trans inclusivity and talks about the business case of why it's good for your business. Is this the one with the clueless white guy? Yes. It's, it's ve- yeah, it's <laughs> very it. cute. That's it was it. very cute and very informative. You can watch it, to, you can go online. He was meant to be clueless, so yeah, yeah, you yeah. got it. Good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, when, so you've had success by encouraging and promoting trans people, and I, I actually saw you speak at the Rally for Trans Resistance last month, and you talked about employees living their authentic selves at work. So what is it that you are doing to help them live their authentic selves at work? Well, it's it's pretty simple. You give them a level playing field, and you support them in being their true selves. And uh, for most of the people that we've gotten hired, they're working for the first time in their true gender identity, and um, probably for the first time on a level playing field. And so they may have been sitting at home before worrying about, you know, whether their lives are worthwhile because they had so much trouble getting a job or have been harassed on the workplace, 90% historically been harassed in the workplace. Um, but when they come to us, their self-esteem, we just watch them flower as individuals as the customer mirrors back to them who they truly are and accepts them in their, in their real gender. It's wonderful to watch the changes, and that's what fuels me every day to keep going. Are you go ahead? No, no. I was just going to say because you uh, own the Pollo Loco franchises, you were able to place trans employees, you know, in the fast food industry. But right. now, if they go through TransCan work, I assume that there are other places than fast food because sometimes that's not everybody's cup of tea. Right. So w- we do have a project with the California Restaurant Association, which is full service as well as fast food, and that's ninety six thousand restaurants throughout the state. But we also have now expanded to helping to trans-diversify nonprofits, uh, retail, and the tech, especially right now we're working very closely with the tech industry. In fact, one of the companies that has become is a leader that really is out there now to support trans rights in the workplace with us is uh, actually Grindr, and we have a big training wow. with them this, this Thursday. Wow. Yeah. If you go to your website, you have this whole list, like, are you a person looking for work? Are you an employer looking to, you know, increase your trans representation? Your, like, you've got something for everybody right there. What makes an employer decide that it's time to reach out to you? We're reaching out to them, and we're and the doors are opening so quickly we can't keep up with it. Really? And, and right now it, we're, we're just developing our infrastructure, and we do need to raise funds and and you can please go to transcanwork.org and look for the donate button. But And watch the video because it's cute. It is. <laughs> uh, there's two videos. There's there's Christie's video, mm-hmm. which is three minutes, and the training video, which is 10 minutes. And the training mi- video was hosted by Jeffrey Tambor of Transparent because the Transparent cast just loves what we're doing. And they truly are a trans rights group over there. You know, it's not just a television show. They're great people. So if you're working with an employer, what are the sort of the – biggest challenges for them to overcome? I mean, you know, there are a lot of things like, it's like learning language and, you know, understanding trans is like, I know just for a lot of people, that's the big barrier. But is there, are there some consistent themes where that it takes a little while for them to get their heads around? 
Well, the video mix is written in a way that they can they can learn the law and and diversify their workplace and see that it's it's a lot simpler and a lot friendlier than they might imagine. You know, what you don't know is often what you fear. Yeah. And I, I welcome any employer to go on transcork.org, watch that 10-minute training video. Um, we have a certification process now that we do for employers that um, includes a number of other elements that, as part of that, it's fairly simple still, though. And then we certify them as a trans-friendly employer. They get this kind of good housekeeping seal of approval logo to put on their website or on their front door if they're um, retail. And that really helps trans people because they're so afraid to go out right now and apply for jobs because they've been mistreated so much in the workplace. When they see someone's been trained and they're, they're it's kind of open arms, that's um, easier for them. So as we hope more and more companies will get certified and they can contact us through the website. Could we just sort of encapsulate the Christy Ramirez story, the first trans yes. employee that you hired? Because her story is so touching, and yet it's, it sounds like it's so classic. It is. Unfortunately, uh, for those who have or will watch that story, it's not that much different than 100 other stories we've heard from people in the workplace. It's, uh, it's unfortunate. I think things are changing now, obviously, but uh, education is always a big thing. I, I speak a lot to schools and at the Museum of Tolerance, and um, you know, I find that education is the fastest way to open hearts and minds. So what was the gist of her story for those who haven't seen the video? Well, I won't talk about the, the company she worked for, but mm-hmm. it, it is a international fast food company. And uh, the manager was, um, even though Christy clearly um, identified as a woman, was being asked to use the men's restroom. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was sexually molested in the men's restroom. The manager, instead of supporting her, was kind of like, you're, you're causing me all kinds of trouble, but okay, you can use the women's restroom if you have to. I mean, what he should have done is called the police and filed a police report. But you can use the women's restroom if nobody else is in there. She would hold it in invariably. But one day she had to go. She asked another employee to go in and check it out. She went in and another woman walked in behind her, went back and said something to her husband. The husband went to the manager and the manager instantly fired Christy. And Christy said, how can you do this? I'm your best worker. I get the most compliments. I've only gotten glorious reviews. And he said, because I can and you're causing trouble and leave. And unfortunately, Christy came to us over a year after the, uh, and the statute had run, and she couldn't file a claim. Uh, and it's unfortunate that sometimes claims are what's necessary to, to create, you know, a, a, a awareness out there. But uh, too many, too many are, have the same story, and so we realize the, the importance of this. And when we see people's lives change, the way we're watching the dramatic, you know, from day-to-day survival to getting married and thinking about kids. And, you know, it's just that's how we should all be living, right? Just, you know. And, and did you know Christy or did she just happen to apply at a Poyo? No, I didn't know Christy. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. In fact, my manager hired her and then I got a call uh, by the person who ran my stores, my director of operations, that you might want to come meet her. And I did. Okay, because the, 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 uh, the other part of the story that's so engaging is the fact that she really does – just glow by the yeah. end of the story. You know, you can tell she's, she was seriously damaged. And she just shines. She loves it there. She loves her workplace so much. And I wish that for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me just say that Christy started with us as a cashier. And she worked her way up to being a manager of our number one store. In fact, in the 450-unit chain of the El Polaca brand, she was her store became one of the top 10. And she was honored by the company. Wow. So let's... 
you know, I'm, I'm so proud of, of these trans and gender nonconforming people that have come to work for us and made something of their lives. And some of them move on, use uh, restaurants as a starting point for other things in their lives. And we're so happy to see them. I mean, it's one thing and, yeah. it's one thing for, you know, for you to have success where people are on the end up on the management track as you know, that meets the average stats. But right. you've said that the folks that have been through your program in your stores, they're twice as likely to end up in management. Have I got that right? Uh, well, I can just say that our case study over, it's over double the amount that we normally have, have made it from entry level to management. What do you attribute that that extra success to? Well, I, I just say, first of all, I'll just say the trans people are just as talented or more talented than anybody else. So uh, any notions out there that this is a, a you know a, a community of people that don't have talent uh, is a misnomer. But second of all, when you know when people who've had the problem of getting treated on a level playing field all their life and they finally get that opportunity, uh, those who really you know most of them are just really taking advantage of it and, yeah. and work hard. They don't take it for granted. Yeah. Well, before we lose sight of who's sitting in front of us, I mean, you have done so well in corporate America, a place yeah. where cisgendered females have enough trouble. I mean, how how much did you have to overcome on that, you know, top track level where you are? So, actually, you know, Atlantic uh, Magazine wrote an article where I was one of three what they call late transitioners who were very successful as a man and a woman in the workplace. And they wanted to see what the differences were of what they experienced. Um, because late transitioners, will, they'll be less and less as time goes on, as kids are starting earlier because of the support and awareness. And for me, um, after transition, I instantly realized at a board meeting how people weren't listening to me. Wow. Uh, and I thought I was saying all the same things I said before. but you probably you know, were. It was, it was some guy 20 minutes later with the same idea who'd get noticed. And I had to, it took me a while to really find my authentic voice, you know, my strong voice inside. Now I feel I get as much or more attention than ever before because it's really my authentic self speaking. But uh, I did realize that, you know, in giving up uh, male privilege, there were some hurdles to overcome. So. And how old yeah. were you when you transitioned? Um, do I have to give my age? No, no, no. No, 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 no okay. we never ask that. Wendell, okay. stop. No, it's okay. Well, I just don't uh, know what late transitioning it, means. Is that like 18 it was, or 39? It, it was uh, 9, 10 years ago that I transitioned. Mm. Okay. And I am actually now... Um, so you were, just, you were 10. I, I just started... Um, uh, I just got my um, Medicare card. I'm 65. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, yeah. I, I that is right. <laughs> you do not look like you have a Medicare card, no. if I may say. You know, something yeah. else that's very important and the subject of a lot of conversation in our area is the Resist March. Yeah. And every, as most people know by now, the Pride Parade has been postponed till next year. And we are having a march for diversity and inclusion and human rights this year. And you've been very involved in that. What does the Resist March mean to you? Well, the Resist March, uh, which is basically the brainchild of Brian Pendleton and Chad Goldman, is um, uh, a replacement for what's normally our Pride Parade. And this year, instead of celebrating, you know, we're making our feelings known and inviting every other marginalized community or any allies that want to join us uh, on board um, because attack on any one of us is an attack on all of us. And that's what really speaks to me is that that, you know, we see that uh, we're all in the same boat. And if there's any really positive thing that's come from our fight against the current White House, 
it is that we're all coming together and seeing that our power is working as a group and not as individuals, even though we each have our own individual voice. And it's so important right now to speak up and let it be known. What's your role in the march? I'm on the marketing committee. i got to say, I, I don't have as much time to spend on this as I'd like to. But I'm on the marketing committee. My VP of communications at Trans Can Work is on the marketing committee, and we're doing everything we can to support them, including things like this, getting them known. So So if we go there, are we going to see you? Oh, yeah. I'll be marching on June 11th. And although it seems impossible that you could be doing more than you're doing, do you have anything new coming up around the corner? Well, there's a book that I've kicked around. Uh, There's a a, a co-author who's a best-selling author who uh, has been reaching out to write it with me, and I just... It's hard to find the time. But other than that, I mean, I am on the board of the Trevor Project. I lead their policy and advocacy committee. So I'm very involved in politics on a nationwide and state level. And um, uh, this is all very important to me. And uh, I want to leave a legacy for my children. I want to help people in my community. And if somebody wanted to hear you speak, they could go to MichaelaSpeaks.com and book you through that site? Yes, uh, probably the best way to reach th- that or the be- or just through transcomwork.org, there's a place to reach out. I've been speaking often lately. Uh, last week I was in four different cities, but <laughs> it's it's a lot of fun. Well, I have a it. feeling you're going to be speaking here again about <laughs> one of these things. Thank you, Michaela Mendelson. Thank you oh. so much for spending some time with us. Yeah. And we'll see you probably at the Resist March. Uh, see you all at the Resist March, and thank you very much for this opportunity. Oh, thank you for coming. Well, still to come, Dr. James Mercer talks to Steve about his memoir, Secrets and Shame, Dear Oprah Diaries. And Michelle Marie gets us in the mood for DragCon 2017 with a look at the underground drag scene in London and the documentary, Dressed as a Girl. Don't go away. We'll be right back. It's time for Who Said That on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. This author is best known for shining a light on Hollywood's negative portrayals of gay people in the movies. Conducting research in the 1970s, he poured over some 300 films. Then he hit the lecture circuit all across the country. He used old film clips to illustrate how Hollywood has consistently vilified gay people, portraying them as depraved, dangerous, or objects of ridicule. He said, quote, These were fleeting images, but they were unforgettable, and they left a lasting legacy. Hollywood, that great maker of myths, taught straight people what to think about gay people, and gay people what to think of themselves. Who said that? It was activist Vito Russo who published his book, The Celluloid Closet, before dying of complications from AIDS in 1985. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hello, I'm Armistead Maupin, author of Tales of the City, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. The time is now 7.29. Dr. James Mercer's memoir, Secrets and Shame, chronicles a childhood that would crush most kids, but led him to a life finding forever homes for foster kids. Steve Pride reports. Cartoonist Berkeley Brevard famously said, It's never too late 
to have a happy childhood. Talking to James Mercer, you doubt that's true for him, but you know he'll do everything he can to make it true for children walking the path he's already trod. Dear Oprah, I decided maybe my letters may be too long, so I'm sending you a short one today. We've been learning about parts of speech, and I only have three quick questions, because I know you will know the answer, and there's no one else I can ask, and I will do anything you tell me to do. Number one, is faggot a verb or a noun? Is it something I say or do? If you think it's something I am, is there anything I can do? My name is Dr. James Mercer, and I'm the author of Secrets and Shame, Dear Oprah Diaries. And what's the book about? Growing up in a small Texas town, being gay and transferred from foster home to foster home, trying to find peace in mind and acceptance of being who I am. Tell me about your childhood. My mom is such a sweet person. She married my dad, which was much like her father, very abusive verbally and physically. Growing up in the town that I grew up in, in the home life that I grew up in, you have to be a certain way. And I didn't fit the mold of what society in Tumbleweed, Texas felt appropriate. Being gay was difficult, of course, and having a father who did not appreciate that or value that made it even more difficult. You were called names before you even knew what they were. Lots of names. When individuals would say certain things, I would literally write to Oprah in my journal that night asking her, what does this word mean? I have no clue if it's a verb or if it's a noun or if it's something I am or if it's something I do. Let me know what it is, Oprah, and I will fix it. So then that way the rest of society can quit saying the hurtful things that they were saying. How big was your family? I have three other brothers and mom and dad. I was the protector. So when normal kids would be out playing football or basketball or dancing, singing, whatever they were doing, I was keeping my father away from my mother. He would get in these drunken, violent rages and just come after her for anything. She's five foot nothing. She's so tiny. So I would distract him, get him away from her to get the focus back on me to alleviate some of the pain from her. And I did that with my brothers as well. But in a small Texas town, people talk. And they have so many things to say, and they point out the obvious, but no one has the strength to come through and to actually point out and to rectify the situation. So when family would state, I know your dad's an alcoholic, I know your dad's beating your mother, I know your dad's doing this, they would do nothing about it. In the school system, Miss Kylie was my seventh grade English teacher, so in love with her. She had explained to me a couple of years ago while writing, whenever I reached out to get a little bit more information, that she reported it to the principal that James is coming to school broken and beaten. Something's not right in his home life. And the principal actually stated to her that unless you have physical proof, we cannot pursue it. And I suggest you leave it alone. So in this town, it's sweep it under the rug, let it go, and don't pay attention to it. And that's what happened, unfortunately. There's a moment in the book where you describe being assaulted and tied up behind a truck. You know, I'm 34. I'm still not comfortable with men just because of the violence I endured with my father, the violence from my uncle, the violence from the boys at school. So I would avoid certain situations. So whenever you're placed in a situation that I allowed myself to be placed into, which was going to the bonfire, I felt so uncomfortable. And I would hear the boys talking about, you know, let's drag him. And they would say these vile, vicious things about how we got to get rid of him. Because in that town, they assumed that any gay person either had AIDS or we were a pedophile. And that was their reasoning behind all this crazy stuff that they would do. So... I 
was hogtied behind a pickup truck. A lot of people asked me if I felt the pain of being dragged. I didn't. The adrenaline was so pumped at that moment. And all I, I was in fight or flight response. And I knew I had to hurry up and get out. The perpetrator was the sheriff's son. So I understand not letting your mom call the police, but you never wanted the police called. My mom would get to the point of, my dad would knock her so silly. She would go into, my mom has seizures. So whenever he would hit her a certain way, she would have seizures. And while she's convulsing, he would still be in this tyrant wanting to finish her off, I guess you could say. So whenever she would get to the point of, I am fed up, I'm calling the police, I would tell her, if you do, we're going to be removed. We have no food. We have this. And no kids should have to do that. So I was having to be the parent to my mom to explain to her, if you call the police on him, I get that you want him gone. I want him gone. We all want him gone. But if you do, we're going to be removed. And I can't handle that again because my brothers and I were removed off and on throughout my life. And it was too difficult. But as kids, you had no food. Right. What I would do is I would wait till my dad would either pass out or he would go to sleep and I would sneak out my bedroom and my aunt and uncle lived five, six blocks down the street. I would go streaking down the street with my black soccer shorts that were frazzled and ripped all over the place. And I would hide behind bushes every time I seen a car light, get to their home because they kept the back door unlocked. And so I would go to the back door, which led into the laundry room, which then led into the kitchen. And I would take spam, potted meat, a couple of pieces of bread, and I would take that to my brothers. And I would wake them up at 2 o'clock in the morning. I get so emotional when I talk about this. But I would wake them up at 2 o'clock in the morning because you hear them being so hungry. The beating is one pain that you can get over. But the hunger, still to this day, I can't see someone hungry. I will go shopping for anyone in the world to get them food, to get them taken care of. So I would steal food, and I would wake my brothers up, and I would feed them. And I'd always save some aside for my mother so the next morning she could eat. Your path out of abuse and poverty was through a funeral home. I found life through that funeral home. I would see Mr. Pastore at the funeral home across the street from the school, and In Texas, we have a lot of tornadoes. So the tornado alarms were going off. I was walking home, and I always had sweatpants on because they weren't tight-fitting like jeans are to where they wouldn't hurt my bones, they wouldn't hurt the bruises or the scrapes. And I had them tied up with a shoelace from a tennis shoe. And so my pants are falling. I'm walking home, and rain's pouring down, and I go underneath the funeral home awning next to the hearse and the suburban. And I'm looking at the cars, and I'm just like, this is so beautiful. Everything about it's gorgeous. So whatever Mr. Pastore was doing is what I really wanted to do. During the time Mr. Pastore came outside smoking his pipe and said, are you okay? Do you need anything? Why don't you come on in and get dried off? And they gave me the fluffiest white towel. And that may not seem like a lot for a lot of people, but it meant everything to me because the towels we had, I could see you through it. I could see the next state through these towels, and they were so itchy. And Mr. Pastore's wife wrapped me up in this towel, dried me off, and they were sweet and sensitive. Nothing like what I thought, and they ended up giving me a beautiful life. They gave me a job. I started cutting grass and cleaning the funeral home. Went from doing that to working visitation at night, handing out memorial folders. And then it went from that to fixing hair, doing makeup and nails on the decedents, to embalming my first body at 17, going on death calls with him. I was making several hundred dollars a week, and I used that to buy food and clothing for my brothers, and it really made a difference. 
which is why I'm so into giving back. I think that everyone needs a mentor. Everyone needs that Mr. Pest story in their life that can motivate them to be the best you you can be. And that's what he did. There's a moment, and I think you were still in um, school. I can't remember now. Well, you were talking to your friend about Ricky, who you refer to as your first consensual relationship. Correct. Explain that. Ricky was the manager at a local store in town. He was the most attractive guy, tall, dark, and handsome, and everything perfect. I was young, and he was 24, I believe, whenever we met. So as a child, you don't understand that that's a no. You can't date that age group while you're a minor. It's just not right. But I fell in love. He gave me attention. He gave me a sense of appreciation. He made me feel pretty. And what ended up happening is he drank heavily. And I started realizing that I was following suit after my mother, and I was dating my father, so to speak. And he started becoming very violent. How did you end up being this person you are today? And because I'm so pig-headed, I refused to be kept down. I could either worry about what did happen or worry about how I'm going to show you how ignorant you were for not taking care of someone who was worthy of love and acceptance and appreciation. Enough's enough. The only one that's going to be able to control your life is you. And if you want to get out the best form of revenge, and and revenge may not even be the best word, but the best form of revenge is success. And if you want to succeed in life, you can't worry about what society thinks. Take what people say with a grain of salt and keep succeeding. And I, I did. I became addicted to it, I guess. I went from a drug addiction to I did a lot of prostitution, unfortunately. I wanted to feel love. And to me, sex equated love and acceptance. So I went from that to being addicted to success. And I just couldn't quit school. I kept going to school, and the associate degree turned into a bachelor, master, or doctorate. And then I, you know, just kept going. What came next after the school? I met my husband of 16 years in Mortuary School in Dallas, Texas. He kept asking me to go on a date. And at that time, I just got out of the relationship with Ricky and played around for a while. And then Asa came, and he was so sweet and so kind, and I wasn't used to that. And Asa swept me off my feet after the second date, and we moved in very quickly, which I don't recommend anyone doing that. But we moved in very quickly, and we've been together ever since. And through that time, we have three beautiful children, and eight. 18-year-old, a 15, and a 10-year-old. But um, I never felt fully fulfilled in the funeral industry. I always felt like there's something more I can do. And I kept working. I obtained my PhD in counseling psychology, and I really started focusing on foster care and adoption because I remembered being in foster care and the system was so broken. So I ended up opening up the agency, and now I get to do the best job in the world, and that's Lone Star Social Services. And we get donations to help feed, clothe, and take care of foster children that have no home and that they are unwanted because we can't find a placement for them right now. So I've devoted my life to that, and now that's my newest addiction that I think will be around for a very long time. This has been a conversation with Dr. James Mercer about his book, Secrets and Shame, Dear Oprah Diaries. Find more information about his foster care organization at LoneStarSocialServices.com. I'm Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Oh, 
Texas, Texas, Texas. Endless source of oil and damaged gay men who get out and become fabulous. Yeah, and very fabulous. It really, it, this is such a reminder, too, that one of the biggest issues that we have in our community that we don't really talk about is we have so many young gay trans, bi kids in the foster care system, and they just need some, you know, they just need a community. That's a big topic, and we'll get back to it another day. Okay, we (laughs) will. (laughs) Director, producer, Colin Rothbart spent five years documenting London's underground drag scene for his film, Dressed as a Girl. At last year's DragCon in Los Angeles, IMRU's Michelle Marie Gilkison had a chat with Colin and three of the performers featured in the film, John Sizzle, Amber Ways, and Holstar, to talk about making the film and what makes the UK scene unique. Let's listen. Why did you make the film? What was your goal? Um, well, I'm the director of the film, Colin Rothbart, and I was on holiday with Holstar actually about um, seven years ago now in India, and we were in the sea, and she suddenly said, oh, do you know what, there hasn't really ever been a, a British version of Paris is Burning or something that celebrates the UK underground scene, and we always saw people out and about with cameras, and it seemed that, you know, nothing was really ever happening to this footage, and I thought, well, that's a bit weird, really, so I thought... Um, I will, you know, start filming performances and I went down to Glastonbury where the guys here do a thing called the Down Low and um, it took a long time to win people's trust. Obviously I knew Holstar and Amber only came on board, for example, after we'd been filming for about a year or so because she wasn't living in London and we thought, oh, she's got a great story to tell as well. Yeah, it was um, always to try to um, celebrate this scene. You know, we all look back now on Paris is Burning and think, oh, thank God that was captured. Otherwise, you know, if you, if you don't see it, you know, it's it sort of like in your mind didn't really exist. And so for people that are here today who haven't experienced London, this is an authentic slice of London at its high point, really. Me, I'm John Sizzle. That's quite an important thing. That's what I sort of take out, well, hope a lot of people take out from the film, not just the fact that I'm HIV positive and I'm nearly 50. I prefer the whole sort of Walton's aspect of it. It's a real buzzy community. We all knew each other. We were all coming together at that time and we are all feeding off each other's excitement. Other sort of global phenomena that the world might recognise the Brits for, things like punk or the new romantics. I think what was going on with us in the early noughties was basically the beginning of a new movement which Johnny brought to the fore. Johnny Wu had come back from New York where he was doing some real avant-garde alternative performance using drag. And when he came back, he started doing it in a local pub and acting like a magnet and people were joining him and bringing their own version of creativity to his stage. And that just grew and it became this really natural, organic movement of real punky drag queens. There was so much love around. It's not a commune as such, or a clique, but it, it was a bit like... Um, community. It was, it was a community, but that's just like a bit of a dull word, community. It's a bit worthy. We were laughing like drains. We were arguing. There were tears. There were people like having complete hissy fits and being ridiculous. But people were there for each other, just like when Amber Where's wanted to raise yeah. money for her boobs. She had a boobathon, and then she raised about four and a half thousand pounds, which paid for most of the boobs, didn't it? Yeah, and that just shows that how much love there is, obviously, on the scene for you, yeah. and also for the people that make people have so much fun in East London, yeah. doesn't it? And I think um, for our drag family as well. I know you hear, like, especially over here, like with RuPaul's Drag Race, there's like drag mummies and then like their offspring and that kind of thing and I get that completely but um, with us it's much more a real kind of thing it's much more of a kind of honest thing it's not just about helping each you know like saying hey this is my look you're going to be the protege of my look we're actually 
genuinely and really helping each other with real life issues. And if you want a, some American reference points, I think we're a bit more John Walters about it. There's a lot of dysfunction, which is normal. There's quite a few gargoyles in the gang. You know, there's people are nuts. We celebrate that. I mean, if anything, there's, it, it makes it more rounded. And you sort of, you learn from it. And it makes it a lot more interesting, actually. I mean, I love my nutbags. There's a line in the film, performers are all insecure creatures. Polestar says that. I think um, with performers, we have a mask, and that, that's what we give to the audience. And we're all fragile, genuine people underneath with emotions, and we're a hot mess of real life. We're real people. The whole point is getting on stage, performing, your vulnerabilities at home, you deal with that when you go home. For some of us, actually, performance actually makes us a little bit more secure, knowing that you're getting loved and adorned and worships and stuff when you're out there you can actually come away and come off stage and think oh wow you know i was feeling a little bit terrible today and i've just done a great performance and so an uplifting thing i think as well like amber was saying that it's a scary place to be on the stage on your own performing and if you're a really insecure person that's a very tough thing to do and i think that to get on that stage takes a quite a lot of self awareness and strength and as you go along performing you become stronger and stronger so it's not just about the adulation of the audience sometimes it's a lot of it is about forcing yourself into situations to help yourself grow and become a stronger person it's also pushing it down because you can't go on stage get all the applause and walk off stage and still think you're amazing because that is fake it's fleeting so it's good yeah. to kind of go yes i was good and put it down and move on to the next show or even when it's a bad show you kind of go okay whatever, move on, and go back and sit in my box of shorts with my dog, and that's real life, but just keep on going, because some people can go crazy for being performers, because they just believe the hype, they believe the applause, and that's not real. It's fabulous, but it's not real. It's your work. I mean, you can go home and congratulate yourself for winning a case if you're a lawyer, or you can go home, you're a midwife, you've delivered a couple of sex couplets <laughs> or two, and you haven't run anyone over in driving school. You know, you can congratulate yourself, but ultimately, if you're a performer, especially a drag performer, don't believe the hype because you will end up very disappointed once the Botox wears off, you know? Which brings me to another point in the film about drag being a young person's game. Why are you looking at me? I'm 17. <laughs> well, I'm, my drag age is 15, I think. It's a young person's game to a certain extent. A lot of drag is about excitement and the thrill of the new. And I suppose as you do things over and over again, the excitement of that wears off. So as you get older, you just think, oh my God, just let the kids do it. But in the movie, when I talk about that, I think the thing is I was getting a bit trapped by drag. Drag was doing me as opposed to me doing drag. And as I put my fees up and started getting more money, <laughs> I started to enjoy it a bit more, I think. But I, I suppose... It's I the late up, nights. Yeah, it's the late nights, it's the alcohol, it's... You have to watch yourself. I mean, and you need a lot of excitement to give a lot of excitement. And these kids are throwing themselves on the floor. You will not see me doing that. I might throw up on the floor, but I won't throw myself <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> give him a few, like, um, sandy boozes, though, and I think you probably would see him doing that. And there's only so much of your physical self you're prepared to give up for drag. Scotty talks in the film about a sense of control over the viewer or the audience. Can you talk about if drag is seen as a way of controlling something for each of you? It is, isn't it? I mean, you are create. If you've got something to say, you're creating a world in which to say it. 
you're a spokesperson, you are a politician, you have got everyone's attention. What have you got to say? We're just showing people the London side of drag because obviously the whole world is seeing American drag, which is absolutely amazing, but it's very American. There's a London sensibility. Very polished. It's very polished, but there's a sensibility around it as well. I mean, I'm here at this convention trying to work out exactly what it is because I'm seeing it live. It's, it's basically like a Spice Girls show <laughs> concert. It's like everyone is so enthusiastic for it. You won't get this in London. No. You won't get this type of gentleness around it. I think there's a lot more... It's a bit scratchier in London, the drag scene. I think in London, though, we, we focus more on performance, um, variety of performance, because American drag, as fabulous as it is, is very much like the polished look and looking flawless and camera ready and the lip syncing, whereas we kind of sing more, there's more comedians, there's more people actually doing magic, doing all different, you know, creating their own music as well. So we're kind of like far more driven creatively than just the look, because you've seen the film, we all look like a bunch of hot messes rolling around a field. There's some glamorous people like Amber, of course, but the rest of us are just a fraggly hot mess. Nothing's good or nothing's bad. Everything's, everything's valid. There's, there's a bit of drag for everyone. What, what do you think of the, of the looks, though, Amber? Because here it's, it's, it's quite different. It's quite macabre. There's one thing of actually getting dressed up and doing your, da-da, this is me, this is my outfit, but then have you got anything to actually say? And any message to give out, rather than I'm fabulous and stuff. So, and that's what we try to like, you know, make the film be about as well, rather than it just being like a home video for the scene in East London. Everyone here has got like their own story to tell. So whether it's like Amber going through her transitioning, John talking about you know ageism or HIV, or whole star talking about obviously like you know having a tranny with a fanny and like being a woman who loves drag. A fanny Every being uh, it means something quite different in the UK. Vagina. Yeah. A lady part, lady garden. <laughs> then also celebrating a scene which, when we were filming, thankfully was at its high point. So, you know, it's documenting it for the future. It seems like there's definitely this inclusiveness in the film that the fact that we have people who are transitioning and there's never a question of do you belong here? Yeah. And that there are trannies with fannies and that you can tell there's a little bit of tension from time to time but it's never a question of are you one of us gender doesn't define what you do everyone says to be a drag queen you've got to be a man in a frock and people say are you a bio queen are you a faux queen no i'm a drag queen i'm a drag performer and last year i won this award best drag act at london cabaret awards and people kicks off people are, oh my god it's a woman it's like i do the same job as you i just don't tuck and my titties are real Everything else I do is I'm projecting, I'm taking on different energies, it's still drag. What's in my pants is no one else's business. Are you entertained? That's all I care about. If not, I'll give you your money back. There you go. We want to raise awareness so that people all around the world can hopefully get inspired. And I know that that was one of the reasons why you, Amber, wanted to do it too, wasn't it? So that yeah. someone would be, you know, maybe watching this in Nigeria or in Russia, places where, you know, maybe transitioning is so much harder, this will hopefully help them on their way. Yeah, absolutely. That was the one main reason why I got involved in the movie at the very beginning. Has your relationship to the meaning of drag evolved at all? Not necessarily. It's still all about performance and it's all, all about giving what you want. But um, going through my transition and stuff like that, I guess I personally see myself more now as a performer rather than a drag performer. I'm trying to kind of like lose that kind of aspect to my performance. I want to kind of like cross over into more of a kind of like a mainstream, broader section of people. And I think that has very much come from a deep-rooted sense of 
going through a lot of personal things myself and a lot of um, working out to do myself with my transition and where I think I fit in society. Absolutely, our movie is very much a positive message about doing things for yourself and getting out there and... Staying true to yourself. Don't hide, have a wonderful time and be fabulous. <laughs> and come to the glory in East London and have a drink on John Sizzle. And remember folks, don't do drugs, stick to drag. <laughs> that, that has to be the most quotable story we have ever done. So I'm, I'm going to take home the concept of trannies with fannies. I love it. And boobathon. I, everything's better with an accent. Sometimes, well, but with them, yeah. definitely. The, yeah. yeah, it's like a tour of the accents of England and the concepts of drag. And, and none of them posh, none of them received pronunciation. Just oh, not at all. real accents. That was no, terrific. Real and quotable. Thank you, Michelle. Well, to learn how you can view this film, and I am definitely going to go view this film. It sounds like, so, if it's like that, it's going to be so much fun. Uh, visit dragmovie.com, simple as that, dragmovie.com, where you can also purchase the soundtrack, which features the performers. And if you should find yourself in East London, as some people do, Boobathon. <laughs> <laughs> Pop into the glory to say hello and tell them that IMRU sent you. Okay, well, we also have breaking news right now, and that is we have just gotten the go ahead to have. Eight hours of us. Yes, us. I am are you uh-huh. for eight hours. The day before the Resist March, June 10th, here on KPFK, from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. So in the coming months, we're going to give you information about what we're going to do, who we're going to have. But it's going to be a great day, and we hope you can join us. June 10th, 10 to 6, eight hours of I am, are you? All day, all gay. There's our bumper sticker. And next week, we will have live in studio the delectable out actress Patricia Velasquez, who will be discussing her new film, Guys Reading Poems. Well, that is it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer, Steve Pride, our director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, board op Gary Baca, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the later show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. And while you're there, please give us a like because we get reports on those, and I know if you don't. Boobathon. Boobathon. <laughs> we'll close with a song from Dressed Like a Girl called dressed like a girl and featuring Johnny Wu and one of Michelle Marie's new friends Whole Star good night